Hello, and welcome to a program in the Traverse City National Writers Series. Today, crime novelists Elmore Leonard and his son Peter Leonard will speak at the City Opera House in Traverse City. Author Doug Stanton founded the Traverse City National Writers Series, which features lively conversations with prominent writers, from novelists and short story authors to journalists and television writers. Here are Elmore and Peter Leonard. Good evening. I remember when I was uh, nine or ten, I would go down the basement uh, to see my dad, who was uh, working in this cinder block room, and uh, he'd be behind his desk, and uh, there was a, a yellow pad on the, the desktop, and next to the desk was a uh, typewriter. And across the room, there were a bunch of uh, yellow balls of paper next to the wastebasket, uh, scenes that didn't work paper that didn't make it in. And, uh, and then if you speed ahead, move ahead about 45 years, Elmore is still doing it the same way. Uh, you visit him and you see him with his desktop looking almost identical. His room's a little nicer now. Uh, he's in the living room, not the basement. But uh, he still has a yellow pad and he still works on a typewriter. There's no computer anywhere in sight and uh, I find that amazing. I started writing with a typewriter, composing on the typewriter, and then before I knew it, I was Xing it out. Each line I would X out, and I was spending more time Xing out than I was writing. So I decided then to, to uh, use a pen. I've, I've, I've tried a lot of different kinds of pens. I started out with a uh, 29 cent scripto, wasn't bad. I wrote a lot of westerns with the scripto. And, uh, I, I, I went up to a Mont Blanc. There was about a $150 Mont Blanc I found somewhere. It was on, on a table where we were uh, guests of honor somewhere. <laughs> and I used that for a while. And it, that worked. And now I'm using uh, Pilot. Pilot V5. And I'm getting them free. <laughs> because I use the Pilot V5. What about uh, cell phones? I know you don't use computers. How well, do you feel about cell phones? Well, so I, have, I can call out. <laughs> no many, one can call in. How many know? calls a year do you think you make? Well, I don't know. I, maybe two or three. <laughs> I, I mean, I only have to make, say, two or three calls a year to my agent and perhaps to my uh, publisher. Uh, so I, I don't have to be a whiz on the phone. Just make a call. That's all. I remember uh, also uh, a time, I was probably 12, and you said to me, I'm going to make my run. Hmm. And I didn't really understand that. I said, that's great, Dad. What did that mean? Well, it, it meant that I was going to give up all ad writing, which was a, quite a relief, I'll tell you, and, and uh, stick to fiction, primarily. I mean, entirely. Just write, just write stories. And... Um, when when that happened, but I had to, I had some accounts that I was working on, and I had to kind of slip away from them, and and, but still I I was uh, uh, putting the accounts in magazines. I mean the ads in magazines, but I was doing it about uh, paying for the magazine space and the type and all that about. Uh, 
at least one or two months late. So that while I was writing a, a book, and I thought, if this book doesn't make it, I'm going to be in deep trouble. But it's sold as a movie. Not a good movie, but it's sold as a movie. I have one of your ads here, uh, written in 1964 for uh, Hearst Performance Products. Uh, there's an elephant foot over a Hearst shifter. And, uh, in fact, the gentleman who uh, designed this ad, Bob Rogers, is in the audience right now. Yeah. But here it is. Here, I don't know if you can see it. Uh, the headline says, Your Hearst shifter is guaranteed for life unless... Unless it happens to be stepped on by an eight-ton East African bull elephant from the Tanganyika Game Preserve while your wife and girlfriend is driving the car. Did you, did you think there wouldn't be a catch? Every guarantee has to have a weasel in it. We'll tell you, though, it's hard to imagine what could put a hearse shifter out of commission. You can try all you want. Slam your hearse up through the gears and back down again until you're too old to drive. That has... Uh, your uh, attitude in it, I think. I spoke, yeah, but I, I couldn't get my attitude working at, when I worked for uh, an agency uh, where I was on the Chevrolet account. I, you had to write kind of cute then, and I had trouble writing cute. You couldn't call kids kids, you had to call them young'uns. <laughs> <laughs> I had trouble with that. Right, yeah, I can't see you doing that. No. Uh, I remember uh, an ad campaign that uh, my agency came up with for Hiram Walker. Uh, it was for uh, a product called Salvador's Margarita, and Margarita Mix, but the there was booze in it. And uh, anyone who's ever tried to make a margarita knows it's, it's a little bit tricky. And this was a wonderful product, and uh, our theme line was Salvador's You Don't Need No Stinking Bartender. And... Uh, <laughs> And Elmore, you used this line, didn't you? I used it in uh, Out of Sight, yeah. The uh, uh, George Clooney movie. Right. What happened? Do you recall the... Uh, there, there was, it was a scene at the top of the uh, Renaissance Center, the ho top of the hotel there where there's a restaurant. And, the, and the, uh, one of the ad men, ad guys, walks over from the bar, leaves his buddies comes over to a table where Jennifer Lopez is, is sitting by herself, and, and he tells her. He tells her about uh, this line, which, which uh, went over very well with their, with their client. You don't need no stinking bartender. And, uh, but then, I don't know what she said. What did she say? I don't think she was interested. No, she wasn't. No. She, she wasn't interested in ad guys. No, that was it. Yeah. Because she had a uh, bank robber you know, on the string by that time. I remember, speaking about a site, uh, uh, my father had a cast party uh, for the, uh, the actors and director at his house after the filming, uh, a lot of which was done in Detroit at the Cronk Gym and other locations, and uh, people were having dinner. Uh, there was a buffet set up, and, and most of the people at the party were in the dining room, and I happened to go into the living room. There was a bar set up, and standing in the middle of the room was George Clooney by himself. So I walked over and introduced myself to him, and uh, we talked about baseball and Hunter House hamburgers and the paparazzi. 
And then the women at the party got wind that George was in the living room, and they started to come in and circle around him. And it was, it was a feeding frenzy. I've never seen anything quite like it. No, you couldn't get near him then. No. And he was great. He just handled it. I guess he does this all the time. Well, he's used to that, sure. Being surrounded by women. Uh. <laughs> you know, you told me a good story. Uh, this is about another actor. Uh, you were uh, on an elevator uh, oh, at the uh, Ritz-Carlton in Boston with Charles Bronson riding up, and the young elevator operator looked at him and said, Charles Bronson, what are you doing in Boston? And uh, Charlie said, I'm checking out elevator operators. <laughs> and then we, we sat down for lunch, and uh, I had had dinner the night before with... Uh, with uh, the producer and the director, and I wasn't very hungry, so I just had some sliced tomatoes and a little bit of lettuce, and Bronson looked at me and he says, what are you, a vegetarian? <laughs> and, well, I'm glad I wasn't. You know, that I'm glad I said, no, no, no. So that worked out pretty well. What actors have you enjoyed working with? Um... Hmm. Well, I, I can't say I've enjoyed working with them, you know, because most often I don't know what to say to them. I never knew what to say to Travolta, ever. If we were, we, we, all of a sudden we're alone together on somewhere, you know, and, and, I, and I would try and think of something to say to John Travolta, and I, and I couldn't. One time I called him up because he, I wanted him to, to I wanted to find out if he had read um, the sequel to uh, Get Shorty, which finally he made. It turned out to be not, not a very good picture at all. But anyway, he, I called him up and he was, he was out of the house. He was somewhere else. And he called me back four days later. And I said, did you read it? Have you read the new one? And he said, oh. And he said, I, I just finished a picture. I just finished a picture, and I'm, I'm resting now. I don't, I don't want to read anything. And he says, oh, hey, you know what? I just bought an airplane. I just bought a 707. So then we have to talk about the 707 for a while. And I get off the phone, my, and my wife says, what were you talking about? I said, a 707. What do you think? <laughs> you talk about what he wants to talk about. There you are. So, the <laughs> of of all your books that have been made into movies, which one is your favorite? Well, I think Jackie Brown. I think it had a it had quite a one a good cast. Yeah, it was a good cast. <laughs> so I like the cast: Samuel Jackson, Pam Greer, uh, and uh, De Niro, Michael Keaton, Robert Forster. Uh, Bridget Fonda, who uh, De Niro shoots near the end of the picture, because she just keeps driving him crazy. So he just, <laughs> she's always yapping at him, so he just takes his gun out and shoots her. <laughs> Brent, Bridget, Bridget Fonda. She was in another one of mine. It was called uh, Touch. And it was about a Franciscan brother who, when he... He'll, he'll get the stigmata. He'll bleed from the five wounds of Christ. And when he gets the stigmata, he can heal uh, anyone who's infirm. And, but he, he specializes, he works at a sort of a drunk hospital, and he specializes in 
healing uh, victims of the DTs. And uh, I thought it was good, but I think it, it uh, but not many people really could get, uh, get with this uh, action that was, that was going on. They said, what, what's, what's this about anyway? So that's the trouble. You're not always sure what a movie is about. You know, and uh, if I'm happy with it, then then if I'm satisfied, I think, well, that's enough. But it isn't enough. <laughs> You've got to please a lot of people when you're in the movie business. You know, we talk about names. Names are so important. And yeah. uh, uh, I was in uh, Jackson, Mississippi uh, with Elmore a couple weeks ago, and we were uh, signing with Michael Conley and George Pelicanos. And... Uh, after the signing, we went to a restaurant, and uh, they were serving uh, fried pickles and uh, fried mushrooms and fried catfish and uh, hush puppies. Yeah. And uh, we were at a long table, and I was sitting next to a good-looking young girl, probably 30 years old, and uh, George Pelicanos was across the table, and Elmore was next to him. And uh, so I said to the girl, what is your name? And she said, Holiday. And I said, Holiday? Boy, that's a great name. And I, I saw George, George and Elmore, their eyes lit up just as mine did. And I, I assumed that they were thinking what I was, that uh, this would be a great name for a, uh, a character. So she said to me, the girl said, uh, yes, I'm named after Holiday Golightly, uh, the main character <laughs> in Breakfast at Tiffany's by Truman Capote. But she spelled her name differently. She spelled it H-O-L-L-I-D-A-E. And uh, her husband calls her Day Girl. So I thought, boy, this is too good to be true. <laughs> so she could end up in three books at least. Yeah. But you've got some Different names. Different characters. Well, I, names are very important. Uh, very often names are uh, uh, offered. You can... Uh, you can bid on getting your name in one of my books that I've had. In the one I'm writing now, there are just two, but in previous books, there have been four or five at least. But other, other names, Raylan Givens, I, I met a fellow named Ray, Raylan Givens. He introduced me. This was in uh, Amarillo, Texas, and I'm not sure what I was doing there, but they're, they're a, uh, uh, a retail. They, they, they shipped books to bookstores, and that's about all I could think of that they did. And, he, and the guy says, Raylan Givens. I said, oh, my God. I said, I'm going to use your name. Is it all right? Can I use your He says, sure, go ahead. So Raylan Givens has been in a couple of books, anyway, in a short story. Chili Palmer has been uh, one of my favorite names until he uh, uh, sued me. And I was, I was paying him, I would pay him $10,000 just to use his name in the book. And if it became a movie, then I'd give him another ten. And I thought that was fine. And he was in the first one. He was in, uh, what was he in? Get Shorty. He was in Get Shorty. Uh, and he thought he was going to become then a, a star. He thought he was going to become, this was the beginning of, of his film career. But it didn't happen, of course. He, he didn't. He only had one line in it. Uh, Peter Peter has had names that he's uh, that have have uh, 
He's changed, and well, actually, you uh, suggested a change. I had a, a I have a character in my first book, Quiver, uh, named Dewan, and I spelled the name originally D E W A N, and Elmore read the book and said, "You should change the spelling to of Dewan's last his first name to D E capital J U A N." And I did, and it made so much difference. I can't. The guy just became more real. It, it's amazing. It does. When you, you know what you're the, doing. Yeah, when you get well, <laughs> when you get the right name, uh, the, the the character becomes real to you. You know, I was thinking back to uh, a name that uh, you used, Miley Mitchell, and Miley Mitchell was a, a friend of my older sister Jane's, and. Uh, at the time uh, my father wrote The Moonshine War, I think she was a freshman in high school, Miley, and you made her a prostitute. And uh, <laughs> I, have to, I have to ask, did her parents ever uh, say I anything? I don't think they minded, really. They liked, to, they liked to see her name in the book. You know, it was... I uh, have, have been in the, or had been in the ad business for many years and uh, calling on Volkswagen, and I had a... Uh, a purchasing agent, a German, and uh, he used to give me a hard time. I'd do a job, and then and we would agree on a price, and when the job was finished, he would ask for a discount. And so I ended up making him a gay prison chaplain in Quiver. <laughs> and uh, friends of mine at Volkswagen and Audi read the book, and they said, uh, they said, does Uli know that you're, you put his name in your book? And I said, I hope so. <laughs> but nothing's ever come of it. Uh, I've got a friend who is a, uh, he's a smart guy, big ego, and he says, uh, if somebody's coming to Detroit, there are three people that the guy has to meet, a businessman, for example. They've got to meet the mayor of Detroit, they've got to meet the chairman of uh, GM, and they've got to meet Dick Ferguson. So I wanted to bring him down to earth, so I made him a 7-Eleven manager in uh, Quiver, and uh, I was nervous uh, because he wanted to read the book. The galleys came out. I had the uh, uh, advanced copies, and, uh, and he said, God, do you have an extra copy? And I gave it to him, and he read the book, and he said, uh, I really liked it. I particularly liked this guy Ferguson on page 74. We've got to do more with him. Let's turn him into a miniseries. And uh, so you never know. No. Well, names are important, and uh, when you get a good one, it, it's, it's, the, the character will just come out on his own. I don't know why that is, but it, it happens an awful lot. Well, you call it auditioning characters, don't you? Yeah, I mean, yeah they have to be able to talk. If they can't talk, uh, I'll either drop them, or if, if I find out too late they're in the book and they can't talk, then I might just have them shot. <laughs> it's about, that's always a possibility, and um, but or they become something else you, because characters are upstaging one another all the time, and one that you didn't you couldn't you you didn't think you'd count on too for too much, all of a sudden opens his mouth and you love him, and and he he just runs with with his part, and that happens every once in a while. I have a, a character, Duan, who I just mentioned, and uh, he's hired by a Birmingham stockbroker to kill his wife. And uh, so Duan is, is at the house, and, he, and, the, and the wife is uh, in the bathroom taking a shower, and uh, Duan is thinking of all the ways that uh, he can kill her. 
and uh, he decides to wait until she comes out for some reason. And uh, it's almost as if he's writing this scene, not me. And the door opens, and Shelley, the wife, looks at him and says, whatever he's paying you, I'll double it. She knows. You're listening to novelists Elmore and Peter Leonard here on IPR. This presentation is part of the Traverse City National Writer Series. Did Peter, when, Peter started to, when Peter started to write books, he had three written uh, before I knew it. I thought, when did he write these books? And he's on number four now. And they all work. They, they work, they're funny, they're, they have, uh, they have dra- they're dramatic. They, they're they're what, he, what he intended to make them. And I thought, how did he do this so fast? Because he didn't, he didn't seem to take that much time. He didn't stumble along, although you started writing screenplays first. Yeah, about uh, eight years ago. And what did you tell me? I, well, I didn't... Uh, you said something like, uh, uh, why are you writing scripts? Uh, being a script writer is like being, is like being a co-pilot, wanting to be a co-pilot. If you I want to write, write fiction. Yeah, I got that line from someone else. But oh, I, I think it made the point. But it made the point, yes, right. And because you have to be in Hollywood if you're going to do original things. If you're going to adapt your own book uh, for the screen, you can, you can do that at home. But you're dealing with, for the most part, people who don't know how to write. You're dealing with studio people who have their own ideas, you know. It's like when, uh, what was the picture with, uh, oh, hell. Uh, it was Atlantic City. It took place in Atlantic City. Glitz? No, no, not mine. It was another movie. And, and, the, and the guy was so excited about what was happening in the story. Uh, and he said, oh, he says, you should have seen the Atlantic Ocean in the old days. <laughs> and, and, the, and the studio executive said, but it's the same. It was the same then, wasn't it? And wanted to, wanted to change the line because he didn't get it. That's the problem. They don't get it. Um, you know, we talk about uh, point of view, writing uh, from the, you know, getting in the head of the character, writing from the character's point of view. And, uh, and that sometimes uh, gets us in trouble. Uh, a friend of mine... <laughs> Uh, mother read uh, Quiver, and uh, this guy Greg Campbell came to my office, uh, you know, I don't know, this was a few months ago, and he said, uh, my mother can't believe that a guy who went to Catholic school could use language like that. And I said, it's not me, it's the characters. But people don't buy it. Well, a woman, a woman uh, wrote to me, and she said you're, that you're... Your book is just full of all these dirty words that I. She said I couldn't read it. I threw it in the trash. She said all I can say to you is you're. A f- <laughs> <laughs> to use obscene language like that, so I wrote to her, and I said, imagine if you were in a book and you're you're reacting you're to to something that you don't like, and you would use your. Your language, wouldn't you? Well, I never heard from her, so. Uh, 
But the kind of person who, in my books, who uses obscenities, uh, the present participle, for example, of the F word, it's always referred to as the F word, when uh, someone objects to it. You don't even hear it. It's part of his, it's part of the beat. It's part of the rhythm of his talking, you know. That because you have to know how to say it <laughs> if you're going to use it. So, um, also, I, I heard from uh, a convict, a couple of convicts. Guy says, uh, I'm currently incarcerated in the middle of the Mojave High Desert. Dreary and boring. How I ended up here is a long, unbelievable tale involving dysfunctional women, heroin, and pure foolishness. I was driven to write because I enjoyed several of your books so much that I harassed some of my fellow convicts and forced them to give up their usual reading fare in order to read Maximum Bob, Swag, and a couple of others uh, that are very conservative. Uh, a couple of others. They are very conservative in their reading habits, and this was no easy thing. Jacqueline Suzanne is a huge favorite here, which says something about both her and the inmates. Anyway, your books are the first ones I've liked and could share with my beloved semi-literate fellow criminals and maniacs. <laughs> there are several there are several different theories on how you became so familiar with those who break the social contract, the disconnected and the outright boneheads who exist on the, on the fringe of society. If it's embarrassing or violates some strange writer's co code, please keep your secret to yourself. But if you wouldn't mind terribly, we're all wildly curious. They want to know if I've done time, you see. And I met a fellow at the... Uh, Telluride Film Festival a few years ago, uh, and he said, I, I, he's, he, he was in, the prison, in uh, prison in Colorado, and he said, he said it's amazing, You're, uh, the way the, 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 uh, the dialogue that goes on, it, it sounds just like you wrote it. And I, he says, how do, you, how, do you, how do you know all that? I said, well, you know, you just pick it up from here and there. And you, I said, why, what, what were you in for? He said, well, I was uh, charged with uh, selling marijuana. I couldn't prove to the court that it was for my personal use. I said, well, how much did you have? He said, 400 pounds. <laughs> well. They're, they, I don't know why they think I've done time, because, you know, I've, I haven't, uh, I'm, I'm all, I'm, I'm a good boy, you know. <laughs> um, from Danbury Correctional, I thought you might be interested in a report of your growing popularity among this prison's hardcore readers. While Harold Robbins, Sidney Sheldon, and Lawrence Sanders remain the most generally popular authors here, more and more of our hardcore are discovering you. This group includes a few college-educated whites, quite a few American-born blacks, Italians, and pre-Marielle Cubans. Some of your recent converts are Charlie, 24, a heroin seller, 
out of 140, uh, 143rd Street, Harlem. Stanley, 35, a heroin seller out of the Kenilworth Projects in D.C. And Mike, 40, a heroin seller and user from Pittsburgh. Your books don't seem to have attracted the cocaine and crack people yet. <laughs> because they're younger, wilder, and less educated. <laughs> the Italians like you, but they prefer Judith Krantz and Sidney Sheldon. Anything about the lush life in New York City. Jamaicans read westerns, Africans read nonfiction, and Indians and Pakistanis read the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> so, it's nice to know who your readers are, but... You know, I'm amazed, uh, Elmore, at how you are able to concentrate. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a time when I was in high school and uh, I was watching a football game with a group of friends and we were listening to the new Jimi Hendrix album. And, uh, and I think you told me you wrote eight pages of Valdez's Coming. In and the I, same room. Yeah. yeah. How did you do it? Um, I don't know. It, just the scene, I just knew the scene. And that's the probably the most pages I've ever written at one time. And maybe, or, Jimi Hendrix uh, inspired maybe. me. <laughs> but you, know. you wrote, uh, you concentrated on vacations. I remember you at the yellow pad, we'd be in Florida, and uh, we were kids then, and there were, there were kids jumping in the pool and swimming and screaming, and uh, all the adults were uh, smoking and drinking, and you sat in the middle of it all. And wrote. Well, and last week, Last week, I wrote while someone was cleaning the carpet, the carpet all the way up the stairs and upstairs with the tubes going out the front door that were supposedly, I don't know, dissipating the sound, but it didn't. It was, it was like sitting in a factory <laughs> writing, you know? But when, when you're really into something, when you're into a scene, there's nothing going to distract you from it. For me, though, music. Uh, I can't listen to music at the same time. I remember one time I visited you, and uh, we were talking. You took a phone call and hung up and started writing, and I didn't say anything and let you go for 20 minutes, and, uh, and you forgot I was even in the house. So <laughs> that's concentration. I've, I've done that with uh, Greg Sutter, too, my researcher. Uh, I turned to do something or, or get up and go to the bathroom and come back, and... And the phone's off the hook. And Greg's in L.A. waiting for me. <laughs> and I'm thinking of something else. So I've, I've got to get over that. Uh, How about your ten rules? My ten rules. When did you uh, think of them? When did, how long, when did they develop? They, they, I thought of them uh, in the year 2000. I was the guest of honor at a writer's conference. And... Uh, that afternoon uh, in the hotel room I thought I think I'll write these ten. I've been thinking about the rules so I wrote the ten rules on a piece of yellow paper not unlike this you see my yellow paper is just yellow paper it's not legal not lined and or so on it's just eight and a half by eleven I, I get uh, uh, 50 pads with, uh, I think, 65 pages to the pad. It's uh, 
60 pages. Anyway, it, I get, uh, I have 3,000 3, sheets of paper that last a year. And then I order some more. So these rules, you see, uh, I thought there would be, I thought they were kind of funny. And, and I wrote them somewhat in jest. I thought all these writers out in the audience would, would appreciate them. And um, so they, they were more for entertainment than, than for, act, for application. My first rule, never open a book with weather. Now, it's, it, <laughs> if it's only to create atmosphere, now, I didn't have all these explanations. For example, here I say, if you happen to be Barry Lopez, who has more ways to describe ice and snow than an Eskimo, you can do all the weather reporting you want. He wrote a book called Arctic Dreams. Avoid prologues. They can be annoying, especially a prologue following an introduction that comes after a foreword. <laughs> <laughs> now, Doug has, has, does have a prologue in his book, but it, it's, it, it's necessary. It's, 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 I'm thinking of prologues in fiction. Um, there is a prologue in John Steinbeck's Sweet Thursday, but it's okay because a character in the book makes the point of what my rules are all about. He says, I like a lot of talk in a book, and I don't like to have nobody tell me what the guy there's, there's talking looks like. I want to figure out what he looks like from the way he talks figure out what the guy's thinking from what he says. I like some description, but not too much. Sometimes I want a book to break loose with a bunch of hoop-de-doodle, spin up some pretty words, maybe, or sing a little song with language. That's nice, but I wish it was set aside so I don't have to read it. <laughs> I don't want hoop-de-doodle to get mixed up with the story. Now, I, I read this in 1950, I think, six. And I thought, good, I'm not going to describe anybody in any great detail anymore. Never use a verb other than said to carry dialogue. The line of dialogue belongs to the character. The verb is the writer sticking his nose in. But said is far less intrusive than grumbled, gasped, cautioned, lied. I once noticed Mary McCarthy ending a line of dialogue with, she asseverated, and I had to go, and I had to stop reading and uh, look it up, you know, in the dictionary. <laughs> Never use an adverb to modify the verb said, he admonished gravely. <laughs> to use an adverb this way, or almost any way, is a mortal sin. The writer is now exposing himself in earnest, using a word that distracts and can interrupt the rhythm of the exchange. I have a character in one of my books tell how she used to write historical romances full of rape and adverbs. <laughs> well, anyway, it, keep, it goes on and on until finally, uh, number 10, try to leave out the parts that readers tend to skip. That's... that's <laughs> And you know what you know what they are. They're big, heavy blocks of heavy paragraphs of writing, 
and, and you can just see the writing in it, a lot of serious writing. And, you, and also, if it sounds like writing, I rewrite it. Or if proper usage gets in the way, it may have to go. I can't allow what we learned in English composition to disrupt the sound and rhythm of the narrative. It's my attempt to remain invisible, not distract the reader from the story with obvious writing, and so on. And so I came off the stage. I, I didn't have all those details, but I had the general rules. I came off the stage, and a fellow said, can I have that? So I handed him the sheet of paper. And this was in the year 2000. Uh, last year, uh, I think it was on eBay, he offered this sheet of paper for $500. And if he had waited just a little bit longer, I think, because then the, because the, my rules did come out in published form in a little booklet, uh, if he had waited, I think he could have he gotten a lot more. <laughs> but my researcher, Greg Sutter, he, he, uh, he bought them from the guy and gave them to me. <laughs> so they're back. You're listening to novelists Elmore and Peter Leonard here on IPR. This presentation is part of the Traverse City National Writer Series. Yeah. Uh, I, I wrote a uh, short story uh, after college, and uh, it was a six-page story. I don't even remember the title. And I sent it to my father for his critique. And uh, I was living in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the time, and uh, so I mailed the story to Elmore and... Uh, I got his, his three-page review uh, a, a couple days later, and he said that uh, my characters were like strips of leather drying in the sun. They all looked and sounded the same. So when I wrote uh, Quiver, my first novel, I, uh, there was a little trepidation on my part in giving the, uh, the, the book to my father because I hadn't written a word of uh, fiction for 27 years after Elmore's uh, first uh, critique. <laughs> And he surprised me. He liked it. He called yeah. me every 24 hours till he finished it and said, God, I'm, uh, I'm on page 85. Uh, I'm on the edge of my seat. Uh, yeah, I, I, I couldn't figure out, where did you learn how to write? So, <laughs> well, listening to you. But I, I didn't, uh, I didn't, ch ch I think I made, I, I, I suggested one change in your first novel. Right. You said take uh, chapter one and weave it into chapter two, part of it, and then move, move the you know, part of the scene you know, later in the book. And it worked. Yeah, see? <laughs> but uh, you did. You learned how to write in a hurry, I'll tell you. It didn't seem like it, I have to say. What, but, uh, tell me, what, what do you think of uh, your reviews in general? Well, I like the good ones, and uh, I think that what happens is uh, I've had a few bad reviews, and uh, they tend to stay with me for about two days, and I don't know why that is, and then I don't care. And after two days, I think, that, that reviewer had it wrong. He doesn't know what he's talking about. No, his attention, it's usually his attention span. He has a very narrow attention span, and he... he he can't really stay with it to, to, to see how good it is. Um, this, this happens when um, somebody said that I'm probably the, uh, 
the best crime writer in America. Well, it was somebody in Time at Time magazine. So they put it on the front of the book or on the back of it. They put it, they, they use it, they use it, my publisher. And then a reviewer gets the, the new book and he said, the best? Well, I don't believe that. So he'll spend half of his review putting me down in, in, uh, in favor of some other writers that he likes better, you know? And I don't get a review. I get half of a, of a book review. And that's the danger of making claims like that. I would just assume they didn't. They just keep quiet about what they think about the book. What about your new one? I know you're excited about it. I, I see that, that uh, enthusiasm when I stop over and you're uh, walking around uh, in uh, sandals and jeans and a nine-inch nails t-shirt. Uh, I, can, I, I know you really like this book. That's why you uh, finally left the ad. ad the business right, I saw you, well, I, and I looked out through your French doors and I saw the backyard, the swimming pool, and the tennis court. I thought, this writing looks pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Well, my new book is called Djibouti, and all of you know where Djibouti is, at the southern tip of the Red Sea, as you get out into the waters around uh, <clears throat> the east coast of Africa, where all the Somali pirates are hijacking ships and making a lot of money, a lot of money. And the, uh, they'll be driving around Djibouti in their Mercedes, you know, with new clothes and so on. And um, I thought this, this, this could be a book. So I have a, a, a documentary filmmaker shooting the pirates. And she sympathizes with the pirates until they hijack the American ship, the Alabama, and take the captain and put him on a lifeboat, this enclosed lifeboat that holds 32 people, put him on that and uh, demand $2 million for his release. And then finally, and we and our spokesman said, no, you're going to have to give him up and give yourselves up and we'll take you to, to uh, court for trial. Well, they didn't care for that idea at all. So, uh, Finally, the, the President of the United States said, take care of it, will you? Just take care of it. And so the they, they, uh, three uh, uh, seals, three seals on the back of the Alabama uh, tra trained their sights on the three uh, pirates and shot them, and that was it. But then the pirates turned on America, death to Americans, which we hear a lot. So uh, then my, my protagonist, she thinks, well, wait a minute. How can I make a movie about these guys, just these fun-loving pirates, when they want to kill us? So I thought, oh, God, I've got to think of something else. Because there are a lot of movies right now being considered by... Hollywood Studios. Samuel Jackson wants to make one. Mm -hmm. And um, there, are, there are situa other situations that, in the news that, that uh, offer enough material 
for movies, and, and a lot of people are getting on that, so that I have to now kind of ease out of the pirate part of it as my characters as my character says, well, what making a movie about the pirates is not going to be uh, you know that interesting anymore. So I have to think of something else, but I will. <laughs> What are you working on, Peter? I just finished a book, uh, and the uh, title is uh, As the Romans Do, and it opens with two American students uh, in a holding cell in Rome, Italy. And uh, this, is, this is actually based on a true story. I uh, was a student uh, at Loyola University uh, many years ago, and uh, I... In Rome. In Rome, and uh, I, uh, with another guy, stole a taxi cab, didn't really steal it. We were going to take it across town to a bar, and uh, we were uh, intercepted by the uh, uh, national police, the Carbonieri, and uh, I ended up uh, spending a week in uh, Rabibia Prison, which is a maximum security prison outside of Rome, and, uh, and it wasn't really that bad, though. It wasn't bad because the Italians are, they're easygoing people. Nobody was uh, messing with me. Uh, they're... they're Civilized and uh, and I had a lot of time to think about uh, you know what I was doing there and uh, I I knew one day I would use it and uh, it's taken uh, you know thirty years but finally I'm using it. And, I remember uh, I I said if you don't use it I will. Right yeah <laughs> and uh, uh, I remember I came home finally I was uh, released uh, from uh, prison and. Uh, I was found not guilty because I was actually in the back of the cab and uh, my buddy Steve Pappas, uh, he was given a, I think it was a 34,000 lira fine, which was less than $20. So all that. But I, I, I came home and I, and I walked through the, the door at our house in Birmingham and my father looked at me and he said, hard time makes the boy the man. <laughs> that sounds like you. <laughs> And you, you did use it. So, uh, and that one I, I'm waiting to read. It's available. <laughs> well, I don't like to read manuscripts. I want to I see it uh, put together. Okay. I'm sure you'll sell it. Can we bring up the house lights a bit? If you have a question, raise your hand, and someone will come to you with a microphone to be cl clearly and closely into it so that it can be picked up by the recording equipment, and then these guys will answer away. Who has the first question? Over here in the corner. Someone get a microphone over there. Could you each talk about your process a little bit? How much do you try to sketch out the framework of the story versus how much you let it unfold as, as you go or something in between? I don't, I don't think much of plot. I think of the characters. The character becomes interested in something. Uh, he he has to. He, we I have to see him with other characters, at least another character, and find out, you know, if they get along or not. It it doesn't sound right. I mean, you just saw uh, situations that that I wrote, you know, but I don't know what I thought when I was when I was writing those situations. Within in in a plot, so I don't think of plot as much as uh, uh, Peter does. 
Yeah, I think plot is really important, and uh, I uh, have written a few scripts. Uh, Quiver was a script originally, so I knew where I was going. I didn't know exactly how I was going to get to the finish line, but uh, I had a pretty good idea. And the same with Trust Me. So I had the, the skeletal structure of the story before I started to write it. And there were a lot of surprises along the way. Uh, and, uh, I mean, things that, that uh, I wasn't counting on. Uh, just, you know, it just got better, I think, as I went along. Um, I've always really enjoyed Elmore Leonard's dialogue, you know, and, and the idea that you have an ear, a really great ear. I read a, an article recently where somebody said that's, that's an insult. That suggests that um, you just listen to other people and write it down. I'm wondering, like, I know you grew up in Detroit. You went to U of D High School. We didn't talk that way. No. Where'd you hear this stuff? <laughs> well, I don't hear everything. I, I hear certain, I'll, I'll, I'll hear convicts talking. And then I'll read something about convicts, about a specific idea, uh, what they might be doing with uh, some kind of a study group or something. And then I'll take their sounds. I'm using sounds more than I am actual words. Their attitudes. Attitudes is what makes makes dialogue. Uh, different attitudes. It, uh, you know, I don't have the same kind of people in every book, but it's not, I'm not taking, I'm not taking, it's not that I listen to the way people, I do listen to people when they talk, but it's not, it's not material that I gather necessarily from people talking. I understand you have a, a researcher who goes to the scene of some of your uh, locales. Could you talk about his job? Uh, Greg Sutter. Greg Sutter lives in L.A. He was originally from Detroit. He comes to Detroit about every three weeks, and uh, we get together. And uh, he's working. He's been working for me full time for about 20 years, more than 20 years, 25, 26 years. Uh, he's um, he's been uh, gathering uh, information about what's going on now in East Africa with the, uh, with the uh, pirates and uh, loading me up, loading me with, with information that he gets off the Internet and different publications. And, and I've got just stacks of... of, of uh, I've got much more than I can use or, or would want to use. But he he's, he's absolutely comes through all the time with what I want, what I need, is invaluable. I wanted to uh, just add uh, something. I uh, have uh, been lucky enough to use uh, Greg Sutter's services, too. And uh, one example, I was looking for information on white supremacists. And uh, so I said, Greg, I've dug as far as I can. I've Googled, uh, and I've done, you know, what I think, you know, I can do. And... Uh, a couple of days later, I got a, a FedEx box. Uh, it had 506 pages, and uh, it was the philosophy of white supremacists, and it was some of the greatest stuff. And I, I culled it down and only used uh, maybe a couple of paragraphs, but it, it did exactly what I needed to do. Um, I don't see a big difference from writing for commercials or copyright writing and going into fiction. But there must have been some point 
you mentioned Bonnie and Clyde, but was there something else that you saw or read somewhere that got you interested in writing about stupid criminals? Or, although I hate to use that term, but I can't. That's all right. Think of another one. Uh, no, I don't see any similarity at all between writing ads and writing fiction. There's none. Do you see any? No, I don't. Because uh, in, in writing ads, you're you're writing about a product or service that you care very little about, and uh, <laughs> and when you're writing fiction, you're writing uh, through the eyes of characters that you care a lot about. Good. That was very well put. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, listening to how you go about developing your plots, I'm curious, how do you decide when a, when a story is going to end and how it's going to end? Well, I know that my, ma that my manuscript is going to run about 350 pages. And so I think of it beginning, middle, and end. And the beginning, I don't have much trouble with. I'm assembling characters, I'm auditioning them, and finding out who's going to work, who isn't. Get into the middle part where you now you're going to bring in subplots. You're going to complicate what's going on and finally get into the, um, the conclusion. When I get to about page 300, then I start looking, I look toward the ending. How am I going to end this thing? And uh, there are always ways, more than one way, to end the book. And I'll just pick one of them and, and, <laughs> and write it. I think you're right. Uh, act three is the tough one. It has been for me because that, that's where you have to tie up all the plot lines. And uh, I guess if, if you don't plot as my father does, it's easier. But uh, I, I am trying to plot a lot because I think the reader wants story. And, uh, well, there's a feeling in my book that there's a plot going on. And there is. <laughs> I mean, there has to be. It has to be about something so that it just kind of it, it the plot just automatically develops when you've got a bunch of characters who are opposed to each other or you know not getting along or there's your plot <laughs> I, I have a couple of questions first if, if I were to win the names contest and subsequently change my name to Joe Biden or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or something like that, would, would you be able to work with that? If you changed your name, but I, don't, I don't understand the question. If I changed my name to a real person, would you have to put that person in your book? Oh, oh, no. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> what's, your, what's your name? <laughs> Uh, sick and good. What is it? Yeah, never going to work. Let's move on to the next question. <laughs> Elmore, you used to have such a massive body of work. Have you ever seen, uh, published any work that you wish had not been published, that you wished hadn't seen the light of day, that you weren't satisfied with in retrospect? Or did you feel uh, comfortable with everything that saw the light of day? Yeah, I felt I've felt comfortable with everything. Though there are a couple of books I think I could have uh, I could have done better, could have made them a little bit more a little bit more interesting. Yeah, 
but I can't think of the names of the books right now. But don't you think that when you when you look back, you know, you could re rewrite a book forever, couldn't you? Exactly. That's it. You can you can always keep you can go over it and over it and over it and, and just little you know just make little changes, unimportant changes, but you think at the time that are uh, are valuable, but uh, they're not. But we still, that's, that's the way we do it. We both of us, we're going over our manuscripts and we're taking out uh, a verb and putting in a, a, a participle to keep the thing kind of moving along a little quicker. My uh, editor uh, at St. Martin's uh, blessed my second book, uh, and, uh, and I thought that it wasn't really quite ready, because I started reading it again, and I spent two more weeks making changes, and uh, he was a little surprised, but, but happy with the, the uh, final result. Hi there. Um, I'm, this is for Elmore. Um, I know you have a nickname that you go by, and I would like to know the origin of that, and if you still are called um, Dutch by anybody. Dutch came when I was in high school. Dutch Leonard, Emil Dutch Leonard, was still pitching in the major leagues, I think for the Washington Senators at that time. And I needed a nickname. Elmore was tough in grade school, not as tough in uh, high school. It's getting a little easier. But uh, I was Elmer in grade school. And there wasn't much I could do about it. Until finally I got Dutch, and then suddenly everybody in, at U of D High called me Dutch, just almost overnight. So, and that was that was a great relief to me. Now Elmore works. <laughs> Somebody have one more question? Here we go. I was just curious, Elmore, if you hadn't been successful as a writer, what was your second career choice? I probably would have been a fireman. I don't know. I don't know. I certainly, I think if I had stayed in, in advertising much longer, I'd be dead. I would have drunk myself to death. Thank you both for coming, and let's have a big round of applause for these guys. have been listening to a program in the Traverse City National Writer Series. Today we heard crime novelists Elmore Leonard and his son Peter Leonard speaking at the City Opera House in Traverse City. Be listening to Interlock and Public Radio for more events in this series. I'm Brad Aspie. Thanks for listening.